Hello there, little masters, and welcome to another weekly episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast, where tonight, Bilbo finally learns that invisibility has its drawbacks. West to hall, my friends. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, the Dory to my Nori, Alan Sisto. Did you do that on purpose, Sean? Because, you know, way back in our intro to The Hobbit, I was the Nori to your Dory. Did you know that? Did you remember? Uh, let's go with Yes. Let's go with yes. I like that. <laughs> it has been a while after all. It has been quite a while. I had no idea. <laughs> well, folks, it's somewhat bittersweet tonight as we come to the penultimate chapter of The Hobbit, chapter 18, The Return Journey. Here we start the goodbyes, and some of them yeah. are bigger goodbyes than others. But there is some truly beautiful stuff in this chapter, some very poignant moments, and a fitting end to, well, I guess almost end to our story. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get into any of that, Let's have our next installment of This Week in Tolkien History. All right. Well, speaking of bittersweet, poignant moments, you know, last week we had that Tolkien quote of the day about how the war made Tolkien aware of the beauty of the world. Mm. This week, June 3rd, is when this episode is coming out. This actually marks the anniversary of his going to war. This is the week that Tolkien shipped out to France in 1916. Wow. You know, Christina Skull and Wayne Hammond's chronology, which is an amazing resource, by the way, mm-hmm gives a brief but heartbreaking chronicle of this week in 1916. June 4th, Tolkien and Edith say farewell. He goes to London by train. June 5th, Tolkien reports to the embarkation staff officer and spends the night. June 6th, Tolkien crosses the English Channel to Calais and travels to Camp Number 32 at Itaple. Equipment he had bought, including a camp bed, sleeping bag, mattress, and spare boots having failed to arrive, He begs, borrows, or buys replacements. Hmm. June 7th, Tolkien moves to Camp Number 25 at Itapla. Tolkien dislikes the hardened professional officers above him, who treat him like a schoolboy, but he will come to respect the ordinary enlisted men. Although as an officer he cannot make friends among them, he appreciates their qualities and will have closer contact with those who serve as his Batman. And we see that experience he had getting to know his Batman in the relationship with Frodo and Samwise. Boy, we absolutely do. Yeah. As always, when we talk about this period of Tolkien's life, I'm drawn to what's just a truly beautiful and moving description of this week in John Garth's Tolkien and the Great War. I'm going to read just a little bit of it, and this is from the chapter Larkspur and Canterbury Bells. Hmm. When his train from London's Charing Cross Station pulled into Folkestone at 1 o'clock the following Monday, now this would have been Monday, June 5th, the day he reported to that embarkation staff officer in Folkestone, Mm. Tolkien found a town transformed from the quiet port he had seen in 1912 on camp with King Edward's horse. Now it was humming with activity, its hotels full of soldiers. He spent Monday night there and the next day, 6 June, boarded a troop ship that steamed across the channel under escort by a destroyer. He watched the seabirds wheeling over the gray waters and England recede, the lonely isle of his mythology." Well, you know, I'm not going to let you keep all the John Garth passages to yourself. Uh, from that same <laughs> chapter, that. yeah, we get this description of that that experience, that terrible experience of losing all of his gear when he arrived at the uh, base depot at uh, at uh, Itople. I'm trying desperately not to mispronounce that. Uh, eat apples, as it was known to the insular Tommy. I could have just pronounced it that way. Yeah, you could have. Uh, was a veritable prison, notorious for its vindictive regime. Fenced in among the shoreland sands and pines, it consisted of a sprawl of warehouses and the tented camps run by each army division, British, Canadian, South African, Australian, or New Zealand. 
To compound his bad luck, the kit he had bought at such expense on his friend G.B. Smith's advice had disappeared in transit, forcing him to cobble together a whole new set of equipment, including camp bed and sleeping bag, for nights under canvas in the chill of what turned out to be a most wintry June. It's it's yeah. just a chilling description, mm-hmm. and and I and I truly do not intend the pun there because I wouldn't. Well, good. I wouldn't dare make light of it. I mean, it's it is amazing that yeah. he made it back, and, it and I'm grateful he did. Indeed, I'm I'm reminded actually of Simon Tolkien's book No Man's Land, uh, and the reality that so many didn't make it back. Yeah, in, including most of Tolkien's own friends. Yeah, yep. Well, so that's this week in Tolkien history in 1916. I think this will be a little bit anticlimactic now, but also mm-hmm. in this week in 1955, Tolkien wrote one of my favorite letters of his. Letter number 163 to W.H. Auden was written on June 7th, 1955. Ah, yeah. And that's the one that contains some of my favorite moments in his letters, from the, the Welsh words on the coal trucks to the oh, wine cellar oh, oh. finish, uh, yeah. from the green great dragon to the childhood spider attack. There's that's right, that's great, all in there. <laughs> it's all in there. Some great stuff. And I highly recommend you get a copy of Humphrey Carpenter's Letters volume and read it if you haven't already. Oh, yeah. The letters are truly, truly a must read. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad we ended on that note. This chapter is going to have plenty of sadness and sorrow already. So yeah, let's go ahead and get into it, shall we? Let's do it. Yeah. Well, we're not going to start at the very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we'll, we'll, t- we'll, we'll touch on all that stuff, but, but the first reading that you've got starts a little bit later. So Bilbo wakes up. Um, he's, I love his first thought. Well, he's not a, a fallen hero. <laughs> not <Yeah>. quite yet. <laughs> not yet one of the fallen heroes. I suppose yeah. there's still time for that. But it looks like we won. I mean, that's, that's yeah. a... There's good. No, there's, there's good no news. There's no living huh? goblins around. Yeah. Elves moving around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, dwarves busy removing the wall. Yeah. That's I love that. Cool. That's yeah. such a symbolic thing right there. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, victory after all is his conclusion. Yeah, but sad. But gloomy, but a very gloomy business. Yeah, absolutely. It and seems that, it seems kind of a bagginsy, a very bagginsy observation. You know. Yeah. That there's. I mean, it's a very honest observation. <laughs> I kind of want to read too that's much true. into it. But. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Just some some of his wording reminds me of that the Baggins there. Oh, it's a gloomy business. <laughs> Sometimes yeah, it's kind of an it's, understatement. Yeah, it is. It's it's kind of like what we saw last time with uh, how you know this this defeat may be glorious is what I'd heard, but really it seems very uncomfortable. Not to say distressing. Mm-hmm, it's that mm-hmm. same sort of wow. That's really a way to put it, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, but I, this this phrase that sorrow seemed to be in the air was just. Yeah. Um, Kind of foreboding, really, as, as we'll find out. But yeah. you've got the first reading, and I'm going to let you just get to it. Okay. Suddenly, he was aware of a man climbing up and coming towards him. Hello there, he called with a shaky voice. Hello there. What news? What voice is it that speaks among the stones, said the man halting and peering about him not far from where Bilbo sat. Then Bilbo remembered his ring. Well, I'm blessed, said he. This invisibility has its drawbacks after all. Otherwise, I suppose I might have spent a warm and comfortable night in bed. It's me, Bilbo Baggins, companion of Thorin, he cried, hurriedly taking off the ring. It is well that I have found you, said the man striding forward. You are needed and we have looked for you long. You would have been numbered among the dead, who are many, if Gandalf the wizard had not said that your voice was last heard in this place. I have been sent to look here for the last time. Are you much hurt? A nasty knock on the head, I think, said Bilbo. But I have a helm and a hard skull. All the same, I feel sick and my legs are like straws. Hmm. I will carry you down to the camp in the valley, said the man, 
and picked him lightly up. The man was swift and sure-footed. It was not long before Bilbo was set down before a tent in Dale, and there stood Gandalf, with his arm in a sling. Even the wizard had not escaped without a wound, and there were few unharmed in all the host. Hmm. A pyrrhic victory indeed. Mm, very. There's a there's more here than you might think. You know, I, I think that's one thing we've discovered throughout the whole book. If Pretty there's much one line that could describe like it, that, yeah. there's a lot more here than you think. I think it's telling that Bilbo identifies himself as companion of Thorin. Yeah. After being cast After down. everything that's happened, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and it kind of points to what we said, you know, some time ago. He, he really did not think of giving the Arkenstone away as a betrayal. No. He still believes that... Um, he still he still sees himself as as yeah. companion of Thorin. I think he still has faith in who Thorin is, and yeah, uh, you know, if if he got to see Thorin's charge out from the mountainside, then you know, perhaps that uh, gave him some reason to hope. Yeah, true. Um, we get some bad news couched in you know a few words here that you would have been numbered among the dead who are many. Yeah, there's there's a lot of loss here. There's a yeah. lot of loss. Yeah. And the same thing about how, you know, few unharmed and all the Few hosts. unharmed, I was just going to say, yeah, that you get you come back to that at the end of that passage. Yeah. Yeah. Every everyone's been everyone's been wounded. Yeah, even Gandalf who you just would think could hardly be harmed, but Yeah. Uh, even him. You know, poor Bilbo with yeah. his ring on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that helped. I mean, you know, well, it helped and it hurt. I mean, he like it you said it, he right. could have spent, spent a warm a night, in bed. night in bed. Yeah. Invisibility has its drawbacks. It's not just good for stealing food from elves. And yeah, being unconscious and invisible is probably a bad idea when people are looking yeah. for you. Man, can um, you imagine? I mean, <laughs> that's a horrible, horrible way to be unconscious. That would invisible. be. That would be. Not that you know. You basically, it. have to wait for somebody to trip over you. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's wonder true. what they just tripped over. Yeah, like the uh, like when they felt like they tripped over him in the. Um, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. In the forest. Yeah, that's right. Know? Um, you know, one thing I thought was interesting is doing some of the research as we looked through Ratliff, finding out that in the original manuscripts and I think the third version, third phase, uh, it, it wasn't a man that found uh, Bilbo here, but actually mm-hmm. an eagle that was perched and looking. And the, the text actually had at one point was interesting. the yeah. very self-same eagle that had carried him to the Karak. <laughs> yeah. Boy, there's a coincidence for you. Yeah, boy. You know, now Ratliff thinks that Tolkien changed this because he'd already written that Bilbo never saw them again, but he didn't forget them. Mm-hmm. So and that that may be why he did that. But yeah, I think that makes sense, and I and I like this way better. Honestly. I do too. I think it's probably a little over the top to have the exact same eagle. Oh well, it's you again. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I think the way the eagles are involved now. You know, we talked about the eucatastrophe uh, last mm-hmm. week, and you they because of the way they're involved, they they kind of swoop in. They deliver the catastrophe or the second catastrophe, and and then that's it. You know, they they don't stay they don't stay around. They don't stay involved. No, no they're and out I think of the story they, again. Right, and I think if they did, I think maybe it would have diminished the catastrophe somewhat. Maybe it would have yeah. it would have made them feel much more. Uh, well, it, you would have it would have raised the question of whether they should be counted as one of the five armies. You know, well, I mean? that's true. Yeah, certainly. So. Yeah, I like the fact that they swoop in and then they're gone again. It's just it reminds yeah. us of that, you know, it's not to be counted on. That's exactly right. It is it is by definition something that is unpredictable and unexpected. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh goodness. This next scene is something I've been I don't know how much I had to pay you to get this this passage, but <laughs> at the same time I'm also quite nervous about it. It's a very very 
poignant passage, and I hope I don't. Um, yeah, I hope I do its service, but uh, it is. Um, I think you got this. I'm I'm ready for it. <laughs> All right. When Gandalf saw Bilbo, he was delighted. Baggins, he exclaimed. Well, I never. Alive after all, I am glad. I began to wonder if even your luck would see you through. Terrible business, and it nearly was disastrous. But other news can wait. Come, he said more gravely. You are called for. And leading the hobbit, he took him within the tent. Hail, Thorin, he said as he entered. I have brought him. There indeed lay Thorin Oakenshield, wounded with many wounds, and his rent armor and notched axe were cast upon the floor. He looked up as Bilbo came beside him. Farewell, good thief, he said. I go now to the halls of waiting to sit beside my fathers until the world is renewed. Since I leave now all gold and silver, and go where it is of little worth, I wish to part in friendship from you, and I would take back my words and deeds at the gate. Bilbo knelt on one knee, filled with sorrow. Farewell, King Under the Mountain, he said. This is a bitter adventure, if it must end so, and not a mountain of gold can amend it. Yet I am glad that I have shared in your perils. That has been more than any Baggins deserves. No, said Thorin. There is more in you of good than you know. Child of the kindly West. Some courage and some wisdom blended in measure. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. But sad or merry, I must leave it now. Farewell. Then Bilbo turned away, and he went by himself, and sat alone, wrapped in a blanket. And whether you believe it or not, he wept until his eyes were red, and his voice was hoarse. Mm, my goodness, that... That is a powerful scene. That is a very powerful scene. Um, uh, Thorin, it, it, it just, it's so powerful mm -hmm. having watched the dragon sickness take such hold mm -hmm. to see him come back. Yeah. And come back so strongly. Yes. He's, yes. he's done, he's, he's become more than the dwarf he was at the start of this adventure. He's become, oh, yes. He, he hasn't just gone back to where he was before the dragon sickness. He's become better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Absolutely. He has, um, we saw that with the, with the charge, you know, and yeah. his willingness to sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. He's redeemed himself, uh, you know, yes. many times over, I think, just with, with this last sentiment. Yeah. And, and you know, he's, he's done what we, what we say Boromir did in terms of he has repented of his action, he's mm -hmm. repented of his words and his deeds, and he's shown that repentance in the, in the things that he's done. Yeah. Absolutely. Here it's it's just words, but even that that charge, the charge out, mm -hmm. uh, really is what I think demonstrated that he was no longer uh, being held by that dragon sickness. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, his death does remind me a great deal of Boromir's, and it's not just because yeah. we talked about this last time about how um, Thorin is to Boromir the way uh, you know Dayan is to Faramir. Right. Right. 
Um, I think that just as Thorin's last charge reminds me a little bit of Theoden, but you're right, there's some Boromir there too, but his mm-hmm. death is just so mm-hmm. much Boromir. It's this, this recognition of his mistake, this repentance. Yes. And um, an ultimate redemption, I think, yeah. before oh, he absolutely. dies. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree. And it's a reminder of the importance of repentance and redemption mm-hmm. in, in Tolkien's works. Um, yeah. We see it a lot, really. Um, yeah. I think we've said before, every character gets multiple opportunities to repent. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What they do with those opportunities is up to them. But right. thankfully, Thorne made the most of his. And uh, and I love the wisdom in, you know, his his forgiveness of Bilbo. Yeah. More than just forgiveness. Yeah. Um, More like asking well, him to forgive Thorne. Yeah, kind you know? of. He's like, yeah. forgive me. But even just, I love this phrase, good thief. Farewell, good thief, he good said. Good thief, yes. You know, we, we talked about the fact that Bilbo is frequently called burglar, but he's only ever called thief a few times by by Gollum, mm-hmm. by Smaug, and by Thorin, yeah. all of whom are people he actually does steal from. Right. Um, remember, and I think I mentioned this a couple of episodes ago, Thorin called the men of Lake Town thieves in Chapter mm-hmm. 15. Yes, he did. Though they were not. He actually called them that in the last episode, too, I believe. Right. Um, right. They were not thieves. All they were doing was asking for some help, um, for some gold that they helped win. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then when he's actually stolen from in the chapter we read last week, he lost his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, now he's come full circle and he recognizes that uh, Bilbo is a thief, but he's a good thief. He's a good thief. He, yep. he did it for the right reasons, and he forgives him. It's, yeah. it's another kind of an, another spin on the honest burglar concept. Yeah. Um, but specifically, he's forgiving him for the theft and asking, as you said, asking him for forgiveness for the way yeah. he treated him. Yeah. He's it's, finally it's realized good. that Bilbo is chaotic good, and that was his problem all along. He didn't realize <laughs> his alignment. <laughs> you can be a good thief. No. Um, yeah, it's kind of more is, neutral good, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. You just can't be lawful good and be a thief. That's true. Right. Um, the repentance is just something I just can't get over. I, it, it's such a, a beautiful moment. You know, he not he wishes to part in friendship. He, he mm-hmm. repents of his words and his deeds, and then has the most kind things to say. Mm-hmm. You know, he 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 tells Bilbo, "You you've got more in you than you know." Yeah. Not only are you courageous, but you're wise. Mm-hmm. And they're, those characteristics are blended perfectly. And, man, if we just learn from, from you and from the hobbits in general that we value food and cheer and song above gold, mm-hmm. what a better place our world would be. And that is such a central statement. That's a yeah. dwarf saying that. Yeah. Think <laughs> about that. Let that sink in for a moment. Yeah. A dwarf has learned that there are things in the world more important than hoarded gold. Yeah. A dwarf who spent just... the last, you know, the entirety <laughs> of this book in the last several years of his life, you know, thinking trying about to figure out how to get he's going to get that hoard of gold back. Yeah. Yeah. Spent most of his life thinking about that gold in the last few chapters, obsessed with that gold, bewitched yeah, by that literally gold. literally. Yeah. And now he has, he has realized the wisdom of just simple hobbit sense. Yeah. As sort of a phrase we might get from Lord of the Rings, you know? Yeah. And I think that's really part of Tolkien kind of coming out there, isn't it? I mean, oh, absolutely. Yeah. We, we yeah. talked a few episodes ago about, you know, Tolkien's famous quote about, you know, he's a hobbit and, and all the things he has in common. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I love that. And um, yeah, I, I think we, we get that just the celebration of simple pleasures. You know, you go yeah. back to the first chapter of The Hobbit and you, you learn what exactly is a hobbit and you learn mm-hmm. about Mm-hmm. Or or go, you know, look forward ahead since we're going to go into Lord of the Rings soon. You look to right. the prologue the, the concerning prologue, hobbits yeah. and, um, you know, the things they value. 
Yeah. And um, and how much the rest of the world, the, the rest of Middle Earth, well, the rest yeah. of the world, the rest of the real world, the primary mm-hmm. world, could learn from some of that Hobbit wisdom. It's a beautiful, beautiful statement. And and this is absolutely one of my favorite sentences, paragraphs. Oh, yeah. Paragraphs. There's a few sentences there. It's one of my favorite paragraphs in the entire book, in the entire Legendarium. And I had to pay you a great deal in order to take you did. it, I know. You did. I, th- I think I, I promised you at least two pieces of poetry in the next chapter. And, I think uh, so. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then I just reminded you that you took everything that remotely was related to Arendelle. But then one of them was uh, Tra-la-la-lally in the next chapter, and I knew you weren't going to take that one anyway. So that one barely <laughs> well, counted. But I'll I'll probably take it still, anyway. <laughs> I, I probably still owe you then. I probably, probably still in um, your debt. At, at the risk of not diving deeply into every single word in this paragraph, um, mm-hmm. I kind of want to talk even about Child of the Kindly West. Oh, yes. You know, this is, of course, just within the context of The Hobbit, the West yeah. is the civilized part of the map. And so this is a way, even if you look at this sort of as a solo phase comment, yeah. he's calling Bilbo a gentle soul from, you know, from civilized places. Right. But but if you think about this in the broader context of the legendarium, Child of the Kindly West, mm. mm-hmm. he's associating him with goodness and holiness yeah. and, and everything that is good and pure in mm-hmm. Middle Earth. I agree. And that is, that's a really powerful statement. It is a very powerful statement. That's a good catch. One of the things that's interesting about this very, very powerful moment is that it almost wasn't. Mm. Uh, Ratliff points out that the death of Thorin was a late development. Mm-hmm. He says that's that right. it wasn't even present at all in the second phase and that there were, there were, there were no hints of it in any of the plot notes. Mm-hmm. That's, that's right. stunning to me. Yeah. Yeah, and, and according to Ratliff, he also calls this the first instance of the older legendarium being altered to match Bilbo's story. Now, we've talked oh, yeah. before about yeah. the way dwarves were depicted in, you know, like the Book of Lost Tales and some of those right. early works, um, downright evil in, in some yeah. depictions. Um, <laughs> if you look at something like the Annals of Beleriand, dwarves are said to have no spirit indwelling, as have the children of the Creator, which would be children of Iluvatar, elves and men. Right, yeah. And they go back into the stone of the mountains of which they were made. Oh, my. Tolkien would later amend that in the Quintus Silmarillion to say that this is what the Noldor believed, yeah. but that others say that Aule cares for them and that Iluvatar will accept from them the work of his desire so that mm. the dwarves shall not perish. Mm. And then we saw that how that's echoed in chapter two and, you know, what, we, what they say about the fate of the dwarves after death. Right. I think the, the deathbed words of Thorin... I think, changed the entire fate of dwarves after death in Tolkien's Legendarium. Oh, wow. Quite an he accomplishment. Just, I, think he, I think he just felt like this scene needed yeah. needed something more than, oh, it's just going to die and turn to stone. Yeah, it's he's going to turn back into rock. Thorin yeah. needs a spirit that is going to live yeah. on after death in order for this scene to, to be really powerful. To have and that so kind of significance. The, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And so he changed the entire fate of dwarves so that this moment would work. That's brilliant. Oh, that's beautiful. That, that's just awesome. I love yeah. that. You know, I think that's the way that a story can take you, you know, as a writer like Tolkien, who was uh, open to anything that would, you know, fit within his legendary, fit within the mythology that is consistent. He would allow these moments to to kind of change and shift things. And that's why this is, it's always hard to say, you know, what's, what's the the one answer to questions. You know, when people ask a, a question about things, sometimes you just don't know what the, what the answer is that he finally landed on, but. At least yeah. here we do, you know. 
One other thing is we've talked a lot about the balance of the Took and Baggins sides. And, you know, Thor's last words really highlight this, that, that whole idea of the courage and wisdom blended in measure. Um, again, because I could say it, but Olson says it better. I'm going to quote him. This is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but it's worth it. This new mingling of characteristics is the other thing that Thorin praises, the blending of courage with wisdom in his character. Since we've been following the interplay between Bilbo's Took and Baggins elements from the beginning, the existence of contrasting factors in Bilbo's character is no surprise. What Thorin perceives in Bilbo, here at the end of his quest, is the fact that they are now blended in measure. Courage and wisdom are appropriate descriptors of his Took and Baggins sides, respectively, but only when they are properly combined. In isolation, neither side steers him in the right direction. By itself, his Tukishness comes out as rashness and arrogance. Left to itself, his Baggins side led him into laziness and timidity. But blended together, in measure, his different but complementary perspectives lend him both courage and wisdom. At the end of his journey, we see that neither the Tuk nor the Baggins side has won. They have been reconciled. Well, you're not kidding about saying it better than yeah. you've ever said yeah, it. That, that <laughs> was a brilliant bit from him. I mean, it, it was really, really And we've well talked crafted. about balance a few times. We've had questions yeah. about balance. And mm -hmm. we spent uh, quite a bit of time over the last few chapters talking about how it isn't the triumph of Took over Baggins. No. It really is. Um, it is it really a balance. Is the balance. And, uh, I love yeah, this, the reconciliation of the two. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's cool. That's a bigger word Great than phrase. It is, yeah. isn't it? It's a reconciliation. It implies that there is conflict and that they they should those two sides should not exist in harmony. Yeah. But but they now do. They are. They're blended in measure now. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the important part. Mm. Well, I guess that's it for the chapter because that's really the most important stuff. No. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's pretty much the book. No. Um, Bilbo, of course, is just brokenhearted, uh, and we're not going to read all of it, but there is that little line about how it was long before he had the heart to make a joke again. That says a mm. lot about, about sorrow that he's in. Yeah. Um, that's a good catch. Yeah. I picked up on his, um, you are a fool, Bilbo Baggins, his sort of self, mm. his self reproach. And you made yeah. a great mess of that business with the stone. You know, after everything that's happened and after as poorly as he was treated by Thorin, he still takes personal accountability for for things not turning yeah. out all right. You know, that's that's very profound to me. Yeah. That the humility inherent in that statement that he's still he's thinking of his own mistake in all this. It would be mm. so easy for him to to just say, oh, well, Thorin has admitted that he was wrong and he's right. repented for that. And so I'm going to rest easy now knowing that it was all Thorin. No, he still believes that he. Yeah. That he, he had still a part to feels play remorse was... for something mm -hmm. that he did. Though, I, I mean, he's he being also a little too hard on himself, frankly. But a little bit, and I think he recognizes at the very end when he says, "I suppose it can hardly be blamed." Can for hardly that. be blamed for that. That's but true. He, but he realizes that, yeah, you know, you really you made a mess of it. You mm -hmm. made a you know you made a hash of this, and it's just <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, like he's, I think the last line just says, "Look, this was going to happen one way or the other." Yeah, I think I mean, there he, was going to be. He realizes battle. that 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 wisdom creeps in, and he realizes that there is truly nothing he could do, and yeah. maybe it's just the. The remorse of, of knowing your friend is, has died. Maybe this is just sort of a stage of grief for him. Mm, you know, he's thinking yeah. about the things that he did wrong. That's a good point. I like that. Well, what happened during the battle? The narrator tells us this. This is, <laughs> again, you know, we <laughs> talked about this, I think, in the movie episodes about how, as, as uh, Dr. Shippey might say, that 
uh, when he quoted Tolkien as saying that the canons of narrative art cannot be wholly different. Uh, <laughs> well, how different can they <laughs> how be? How different can they be? And he talks about how one of the canons of, of narrative art, of written art, is to show and not tell. And yet that's exactly what Tolkien does. And this is an example of that. Right. Here it is after the fact. We're being told of it by the narrator. Classic so, uh, action scene through flashback that we see yeah. quite a few times yeah. in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead yeah. and take that for us? All right. The eagles had long had suspicion of the goblins mustering. From their watchfulness, the movements in the mountains could not be altogether hid. So they too had gathered in great numbers under the great eagle of the misty mountains. And at length, smelling battle from afar, they had come speeding down the gale in the nick of time. They it was who dislodged the goblins from the mountain slopes, casting them over precipices, or driving them down, shrieking and bewildered among their foes. It was not long before they had freed the lonely mountain, and elves and men on either side of the valley could come at last to the help of the battle below. But even with the eagles they were still outnumbered. In that last hour Bayorn himself had appeared. No one knew how or from where. He came alone and in bear's shape, and he seemed to have grown almost to giant size in his wrath. The roar of his voice was like drums and guns, and he tossed wolves and goblins from his path like straws and feathers. He fell upon their rear and broke like a clap of thunder through the ring. The dwarves were making a stand, still about their lords, upon a low-rounded hill. Then Bayorn stooped and lifted Thorin, who had fallen, pierced with spears, and bore him out of the fray. Swiftly he returned, and his wrath was redoubled, so that nothing could withstand him, and no weapon seemed to bite upon him. He scattered the bodyguard and pulled down Bolg himself and crushed him. Then dismay fell on the goblins, and they fled in all directions. Man. Bayorn. Yeah, Bayorn's Bayorn. the hero, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember from the Father Christmas Letters, North Polar Bear? Yes, yes. <laughs> that kind of reminded me of that. Especially yeah. the straws and feathers. He's just throwing them everywhere. And yeah. yeah I, totally I reminded that, me that, of NPB. That, that awesome and kind of adorable picture of North Polar Bear <laughs> just grabbing goblins and flinging them and kicking yeah. them. And, um, and, and I think that yeah. letter actually was, I think it was from like maybe 1940, 1941 or something. I think it was actually after The Hobbit. So okay. that was a case of The Hobbit influencing yeah. the letter as opposed to the opposite. But it's a <laughs> That is brilliant. I can't help thinking of it. Thank you, Bayorn, for coming. <laughs> Very much. And thank uh, you, the Eagles, for, um, for yeah. you know, watching and yeah, gathering. And showing up and then starting mm -hmm. to fling these goblins off the mountain slope. Yeah, yeah. Um, the metaphors here, that Bayorn's voice was like drums and guns. And that he cool tossed the goblins. cool from the, from the narrator. Yeah, drums and guns. But then I'm just thinking of the, just how powerful these metaphors are. The, mm -hmm. the roar is like drums and guns. The tossing is like straws and feathers, and mm. then he breaks like a clap of thunder through the ring. I just love mm. how he uses all metaphors to describe what Bayorn does. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. One of them is kind of anachronistic. <laughs> no, but that's okay because, I mean, you know, yeah, the, narrator the narrator does insert voice. himself into the story. Right. Absolutely. That, we get that, that all the that time. Whistle like a freight train, wasn't right. it? Right. Um, this isn't like and, Gandalf telling us this because right. that would be an, a truly anachronistic moment. Right. But this exactly. is the narrator, and that's okay. And you're right. It is it, it is such a powerful series of metaphors. We get all sorts of sensory, you know, yeah. we get the sound. We yeah. get sort of a, a tactile Yeah, metaphor straws, and, straws feathers, and feathers because you can immediately feel those in your hand and you're throwing yeah. them around like they're nothing. Yeah. And then and the then auditory, the clap, of the clap of thunder. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. 
But then he himself, he slays Bolg. Oh, so One cool. Moment. That is that is so cool. Pulled him awesome. down and crushed him. You're done. <laughs> and then, of course, you know. You've been like, bared. You've been, you've been bared. Um, and then dismay fell on the goblins, and they yeah. fled in all directions. Morale, you know, we see morale this. boost, or, yeah, yeah, morale, you know, Mora- cut. Morale killer, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and you, you the see this a lot. The beating shall continue until morale improves. <laughs> you know, you see that a lot in Tolkien's works, the idea that evil is weak without a leader. You know, mm-hmm. as soon as Bolg is taken down, the goblins just like, well, okay, if they can take done. down Bolg, we're out of here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. exactly. Absolutely. Such a cool moment. It really is. So now victory is certain. Uh, yep. But, you know, Bilbo's here. He's like, well, where is everybody? And, and kind of the point is, look, they're all still chasing after them all. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the eagles, most of them are, are actually have gone back home to their Aries. But some are still hunting. And the other, the other uh, men, elves, and dwarves are out chasing down the bad guys. Yep. They do talk about... Uh, uh, Dane having crowned the uh, the eagle with gold and swearing eternal friendship. And that's a kind of a big that's moment. That's super there. cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it really is. Dane, Dane uh, continues to demonstrate what a good leader should he do. He continues to impress, and he'll do that some, again yes, here shortly. He, yes, he does time yeah. and time again. Absolutely. And you know that that kind of makes me think of there's there's a lot of restorative language in this mm-hmm. chapter, and I think yeah, the next really one is. too. Um, but you know that we get this idea of the mountains had peace uh, oh, for many yeah. a year. Yeah, and you you know you start to see these alliances, these friendships forming between mm-hmm. the dwarves and the eagles. We'll see it again. Um, I won't spoil it, but we'll talk about it in a moment between you know the dwarves <laughs> and the other races. And you just see how this region has now just been completely restored, mm-hmm. and um, and it's 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 a it's a dawning of a new age for this region. It is, and before they can get to that new age. They have to bury Thorin, and I'm going to go ahead and pick up there. They buried Thorin deep beneath the mountain, and Bard laid the Arkenstone upon his breast. There let it lie till the mountain falls, he said. May it bring good fortune to all his folk that dwell hereafter. Upon his tomb, the elven king then laid Orchrist, the elvish sword that had been taken from Thorin in captivity. It is said in songs that it gleamed ever in the dark if foes approached, and the fortress of the dwarves could not be taken by surprise. There now Dayan son of Nain took up his abode, and he became king under the mountain, and in time many other dwarves gathered to his throne in the ancient halls. Of the twelve companions of Thorin, ten remained. Feely and Keely had fallen defending him with shield and body, for he was their mother's elder brother. The others remained with Dayan, for Dayan dealt his treasure well. Wow. Feely and Keely. Feely and Keely dying, defending Thorin. Yeah. And again, they're just as a reminder, their death was not in any of the written, any of the manuscripts. Didn't show up until the typescript. Yeah. Um, that's a, a sorrowful moment there, but they, they died doing what they were supposed to do, defending their king. Yeah. I'm reminded just a little bit of Eowyn, who did mm. not die. But who was ready to die defending oh, on the battlefield? To, yeah, for her. And uncle. O- only partly because we've been talking about Thorin and Thaden. and I've been comparing those two for the last <laughs> yeah. couple of weeks now. Yeah, that's but, true. Um, yeah, you get a little bit of that, that that final stand. But you know what? Before we move on, the uh, the last line in that reading is something that really is important. The others remained with Dane, for Dane dealt his treasure well. 
that gives us yeah yeah, that really is big that gives us a chance to kind of revisit that sidebar we did on dan last week uh in that we talked of course about him being thorin as he was meant to be Mm -hmm. now we've seen some more examples of that uh the yeah swearing friendship with the eagles and and dealing his treasure well so it's time to talk about some of the other things that Ratliff points out about Dan, even though he's a so-called minor character that's really always in the background. We just saw he's fair in dealing his treasure. Well, that's the, the chief requirement of an Anglo-Saxon king, isn't it? I mean, right. you know, that, that's what, that, that's what that's gold what makes is him for. A king. You know, right. Yeah, it's to reward fealty, not to, not to sit on it like not a dragon. Not to hoard. Yeah. 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 And more than that, in a moment, we're going to see that he goes beyond just keeping his word. Uh, in giving Bard the necklace of Geryon. Remember last week when Thorin specifically excluded the gems from the one-fourteenth of the hoard that he was going to pay, and I told you, remember that? Mm-hmm. Well, here, shortly we're going to find out that he gives the necklace of Geryon to Bard, even though Thorin had excluded gems from from the price that he was going to pay. That's right, yeah. So yep. that's a, a really big example of, uh, of of Dan being this this kind of idealized king. Yeah. Yeah. As, as you said, he continues to impress he, he, oh, yeah. at every turn. And, mm-hmm. you know, we we talked a, a couple of episodes ago about the uh, information from the Lord of the Rings appendices about how he fought yeah. Moria, killing Azog, even when he was still a oh, whippersnapper. Yeah. Just a stripling. Right. Yeah. And and uh, but he also kept Thrain from trying to reclaim Moria at the time. That's right. He knew he some that Durin's Bane, mm-hmm. the Balrog, still remained there. Yep, and and so you know that's just one indication of his wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, while he comes to Thorin's aid here, coming back to this, you know, to this scene, right to our story, yeah, he he knows to quickly ally with men and with elves mm-hmm. when the goblins arrive. Right, and he doesn't he doesn't go back to fighting them once that battle's over. He doesn't say, that's "Okay, true. the goblins are done. Now I'm going to take out these guys." <laughs> he he negotiates. Now that the elves peace. have been weakened, I'm going <laughs> to now's right, my chance. Right, that's yeah, exactly, and he you know he. He could have done that if he had sure. less integrity than he does or less wisdom than he does. But instead, mm-hmm. he negotiates a peace. That's right. Um, even looking ahead to the Council of Elrond, we learn that uh, he was wise enough to see through the lies of Sauron's messengers. Right. And even in death, he, he remains a noble and wise figure. It says he, yeah. he fought on standing over the body of King Brand before the gate of Erebor until darkness oh, man. fell. That's right. So. Oh. From from the beginning to the end of his his story yeah. in the appendices and including this moment here, he is just he's noble, he's yeah. wise, he's he's everything that a dwarven ruler should be. Yeah, and, and he I seems think to always fitting. make the right decisions, doesn't he? He does, and I think it's yeah. very fitting that he becomes the fulfillment of the prophecies. Yeah, and that's the thing; he really does. He fulfills all those prophecies that that Thorin thought might be about him. Mm-hmm. You know, that when the king returns. But some of it was. I, I, I still think that him coming out of the mountain shining like gold uh, was yeah, certainly that's a good uh, catch. I mean, part I of think that prophecy. That, I think that was definitely part of the prophecy. Yeah. So but, uh, let's go ahead and get to the uh, <laughs> the distribution of wealth, shall we say. <laughs> I'm going right. to have you read the next little passage here. Okay. There was, of course, no longer any question of dividing the horde and such shares as had been planned to Balin and Dwalin, and Dori and Nori and Ori, and Owen and Glowen, and Biffer and Bofer and Bomber, or to Bilbo. Yet a fourteenth share of all the silver and gold, wrought and unwrought, was given up to Bard. For Dan said, We will honor the agreement of the dead, and he has now the Arkenstone in his keeping. Even a fourteenth share was wealth exceedingly great, greater than that of many mortal kings. 
From that treasure, Bard sent much gold to the master of Lake Town, and he rewarded his followers and friends freely. To the elven king he gave the emeralds of Geryon, such jewels as he most loved, which Dayan had restored to him. There you go. Dane had restored to him. And mm-hmm. I love that, though, because then and you see and how generous Bard, you see Bard, Bard doing, you know, playing the, mm-hmm. the, the proper role of an Anglo-Saxon king. Absolutely. Dealing out gold to his yeah. followers and To the friends. lake town, to the master of lake town, and to the elven king. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very, very well done. Well done, sir. Clap, clap, golf clap for, for Bard. Yay, Bard. Yay, Bard. <laughs> and there was much rejoicing. And there Yay. was much rejoicing. It's exactly what I was thinking. Yay. So, yeah, so we revisit the fact that, uh, you know, he, he goes beyond the scope of Thorin's original agreement and includes mm-hmm. uh, the Emeralds of Geryon to the Elven King. Yep. So, um, as you said, Dayan didn't. To Bard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good So, stuff. as you said, Dayan didn't limit his, his 14th share to gold and silver. Right. And, and, and again, he's honoring, he's honoring the words, uh, honoring mm-hmm. the, uh, the agreement of the previous king. Yep. Though he had a very short reign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So. That's true, but again, yeah, just honoring the agreement, I think, is mm-hmm. is bigger than it might seem. You know, he there's really a lot. Yeah, it, it's yeah, huge. He, it's a big thing. He's fo- even though Thorin was not king for very long, and one could probably argue against his legitimacy if one really wanted to. Sure, it wouldn't uh, be hard. Not not that he not that it wasn't his birthright, but just you know, from the perspective of his behavior as king. Yeah, um, one could argue against his actions, but no, Dan follows the rules. You know, he, yeah. he follows the the standards that sort of the the moral and social standards of his mm-hmm. culture. And that's a pretty big chunk of change that he gives him. I mean, like it says, yeah. that 14th share, now you think, well, one fourteenth that's really not very much. Uh, okay, yeah, it's probably what, uh, I haven't done the math, what, 7% maybe? Seven, seven, yeah, just about 7 point something. Seven, I guess so, 7% yeah, yeah. would be, 7 times 14 would be 98. So, yeah, 98. So that's, um, that's so it'd be like enough. 7 point something. So yeah. it's not much. But boy, it unless still it's turns a out, very large denominator, which it is exactly. That's the thing. It's still greater than that of, of many that, mortal greater kings. Greater than the wealth of many mortal kings. That's a lot of money, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fourteenth share of a lot is still a lot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, not like a fourteenth share of zero. No, <laughs> carry the zero. Carry the zero. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and pick up right after you left so, off because uh, – and then I think you even pick up after that. <laughs> we, do this is one of those – it's such a short chapter that it was hard to pick I – mean, this is really a short chapter. So we yeah, kind of ended is. up reading a little more than we usually do in terms of you know percentage of the text. But uh, uh, yep. yeah, I pick up right there and then he'll pick up for the goodbyes. To Bilbo, he said, this treasure is as much yours as it is mine. Though old agreements cannot stand, since so many have a claim in its winning and defense. Yet even though you were willing to lay aside all your claim, I should wish that the words of Thorin, of which he repented, should not prove true, that we should give you little. I would reward you most richly of all. Very kind of you, said Bilbo. But really, it is a relief to me. How on earth should I have got all that treasure home without war and murder all along the way? I don't know. And I don't know what I should have done with it when I got home. I'm sure it is better in your hands. In the end, he would only take two small chests, one filled with silver and the other with gold, such as one strong pony could carry. That will be quite as much as I can manage, said he. Now, I broke that there rather than continuing to the goodbye, not only because I wanted to give you the emotional goodbye since I took Thorin's death, (laughs) <laughs> I Which I thank really, you for. Yeah, I felt like, hey, actually, I can at least give you that. Uh, because those are great lines, too, you know, <laughs> that we're going to get to they in a are. minute. 
but because this really gives us a chance to kind of do one of our, our famous digressions. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we had a, a, one of our listeners, Jonathan L., uh, sent us an email earlier, well, probably about a month ago, talking about the economic impact of this, uh, you know, how much wealth is here in these, uh, in these chests. Mm, so right. let's break this down. He, <laughs> you, you did some math on this. I'm glad, did some I'm glad math. he did. Yeah. He did some math, and then I changed the math, and here's what we've got. <laughs> His suggestion, based on, I guess, some Google research that I was able to say. Jonathan's is, suggestion, right? This, yeah, this was yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. This is Jonathan's point, was that a pony can probably carry about 60 to 80 pounds each. Uh, he, he's assuming equal shares. Right, sure. one, okay. one, one silver, two, one gold. Two equal size chests, and right. then it's a, a, the same weight of each. Sure. Okay. That, so each chest probably weighs 60 to 80 pounds. Now, the question is, how many coins is that? Now, this is where I differ from his math. I'm going to go with something Tolkien would have been more familiar with. Uh, in the old British currency system, it would have been there are 240 pennies in a pound. And I mean, literally, right. in a pound sterling, there were 200 which was, yeah, which was a uh, pound of silver, right? Right, yep. which was a pound of silver. There were 240 pennies or uh, um, pence. what were they called? They weren't called pennies. Pence, that's right. I yep. knew it was just short. Singular penny, plural pence, yep. That's right, right. So if there are 240 pennies in a pound and there are 60 to 80 pounds each, then we're looking at 14,000 to 19,000 coins, right? Okay. So somewhere between fourteen and 19,000 coins of silver and to and 14,000 to 19,000 coins of gold. That's a lot of coins. That's a lot of coins. That's a lot of coins. But so how much are these coins worth though? That's the question. Now, this is where I have to kind of differ from from our our listener Jonathan's uh, suggestion. He tried to draw the analogy and he was he was not wrong uh, to the idea that the four silver pennies Butterbur paid for Bill in Fellowship of the Ring he suggests that sets a value of about $1,000 uh, for four silver pennies because the utility of a horse is about equivalent to the utility of a broken-down old used truck today. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> that's I, a I fair that. analogy. That's a yeah, fair yeah, analogy. Sure, I yeah. get that. That's, that's a really useful metaphor. Yeah. Um, but but I'm going to say you can get a, a horse for pretty cheap if it's an old broken-down horse. We did some research, didn't we, right before the show? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. You know, how can I, I really buy a pony? You know, and, and the truth is, they're just, don't tell my daughter I was pricing ponies on the internet. Oh goodness! Was, if she finds yeah. that in your Google history, she is yeah. going to go ballistic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So here's the thing: even if you don't have the money for a pony, all you got to do is find a boy horse, find a girl horse, <laughs> throw on a little Barry White, you know, couple, of... <laughs> and the next yeah, thing you know, that's true. You got yourself a pony. You want a horse, man? I can get you a horse. I can get you. I can make you give me two horses. I'll you want a horse? I can get you a horse. I can get you a horse, mate. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just go with, and I'm, I'm, I also want to be really conservative with the value here. So let's go with a tenth of that value that uh, that Jonathan had suggested, that four silver pennies would instead be worth $100. That would make okay. each coin worth $25, which is still a pretty significant sum. And I, and I and that's probably about fair because I did find yeah. some some pretty unimpressive ponies online for a hundred hundred fifty dollars. <laughs> unimpressive so, yeah. ponies for a hundred hundred fifty yeah. bucks. We yeah. have a couple of uh, equine experts that I'm sure will pipe in, and I wish that we reached out uh, prior yeah, to recording yeah. this episode. Yeah. But, 
But the numbers that we're coming up with then at about 100 pennies, I mean $100 for four silver pennies, uh, that means that the coins, the silver coins, are worth between $360,000 to $480,000. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, but just you wait because gold has historically been worth, well, in recent times, it's been worth as much as 50 times as, as, as much as silver, but that's not mm. really historically consistent. 10 to 15 times is, is certainly the right range that we're looking at. So 15 times, even at 15 to 1, that gold, if the silver value is correct, then the gold value would be worth anywhere from 5.4 to $7.2 million. <laughs> so we're looking at a net sum of like 5.7 to 7.5. Wow. And then there's the pots he picks up on his way home. <laughs> he and probably that's a conservative with, estimate. Yeah. That's a conservative estimate saying four silver pennies is worth $100. Yeah. yeah. My goodness. Interesting. That's a lot wow. of money. I just thought that was that, a fun little aside. <laughs> that is a lot of money. And I'm glad you did the work on that. Well, Jonathan you, did you a lot with Jonathan. of the work. I think you said yeah. Jonathan kind of came up with the initial He came up with the idea. idea. Yeah. I kind of changed mm-hmm. the values around both in terms of how many pennies to a pound. Uh, I think he he came up with a much lower number, uh, probably based on a Dungeons and Dragons reference. I think, but uh, okay. uh, th- that would make for very heavy pennies. I will say that. Mm, um, right. And instead, we you know would use something that Tolkien would have been familiar with, with the pound sterling. The old pounds, shillings, pence. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Shillings, pence, pounds. Yeah. Wow, that's great. I'm glad. <laughs> it's you an did interesting that. idea. <laughs> And and that doesn't even count the the mithril coat, which you know, as we know, is worth oh, more than the yeah. entire shire. More right? than the entire shire, which. Man, that's Who know, you know, that's, that's a money, lot of money. Man. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Uh, so yeah, he's he's probably right that having more than that, really, how, what good would that have done him? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, would have gotten him killed on the way home. Yeah, that's um, true. And he's he's got more than enough money to spend, considering oh, yeah. that he was already a well-to-do hobbit. Exactly. You know, this well, is and, just and little... as we'll see, it's probably just as well he doesn't come back with that much uh, gold. He <laughs> he probably wouldn't have survived the auction. That's very um, true. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, you're already well, legally dead. I think I'm going to kill you now. <laughs> yeah. And 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 it, all the money. And since he spent so much of that money to buy his stuff back anyway. Well, yeah. You know, some of it, at least. That's true. Yeah. So, oh, goodness. That's a lot more fun than uh, than the thing I've got here, which is about two oh, chests. I don't know. Which... <laughs> I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's cool. You know, it's, it, and obviously, you know, it, I'm always into the mythological references. And yeah, this one is one yeah. actually that, that Ratliff picked up on for me. So credit to of Ratliff. Course, but, of course. But there, there are some similarities between Bilbo's treasure and that of Sigurd, the dragon slayer yeah. from, uh, from the Volkswagen saga. saga. Right. Yeah. Uh, in that story, Sigurd fills two chests and loads his horse, Grani, with them. And uh, and so there you got the two chests and the horse carrying them. Right. And this was uh, such a, a trope in, in Norse mythology that the phrase Granny's burden actually became a kenning for gold. Oh, that's beautiful. You remember remember uh, kenning yeah, those, you know, those compound metaphors. Right. Um, yeah, they would they would refer to gold as Granny's burden. And people knew that's that story awesome. so well. Well, you know, the other interesting bit about that is that the treasures that Sigurd took from Fafnir's hoard, they they included a famous sword a valuable mail coat, and mm-hmm. the Helm of Awe, which supposedly made its wearer invisible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what were the other treasures Bilbo took home besides two chests loaded onto his horse? Sting, a mithril a coat. sword. And the one <laughs> a ring. A mail coat. And an, and an invisibility <laughs> object. An invisibility uh, tool. Uh, yeah. Pretty awesome. cool. Pretty cool that stuff. That is awesome. That really was. Oh, man. 
Well, it's not time for us to say farewell yet, but it is time for Bilbo to say farewell. Sean, would you uh, take this very emotional moment here? I will. I will, and I will do my best with it. At last, the time came for him to say goodbye to his friends. Farewell, Balin, he said. And farewell, Dwellin. And farewell, Dory, Nori, Ori, Owen, Glowen, Biffer, Bofer, and Bomber. May your beards never grow thin. And turning towards the mountain, he added, Farewell, Thorin Oakenshield, mm. and Feely and Keely. May your memory never fade. Then the dwarves bowed low before their gate, but words stuck in their throats. Goodbye and good luck, wherever you fare, said Balin at last. If ever you visit us again, when our halls are made fair once more, then the feast shall indeed be splendid. If ever you are passing my way, said Bilbo, don't wait to knock. Tea is at four, <laughs> but any of you are welcome at any time. Oh. Then he turned away. What a moment. That mm. takes you right back to chapter one, doesn't it? It you does, know? yeah. Don't wait to knock. Don't wait to knock. He's going <laughs> like to go back did. to be, you know, he's. I, you can sense that he's. he's happy to be returning to his home mm -hmm. and tea time at four. Oh, yes. Um, and yeah. going back civilization to some, some again would be nice. Some normalcy and some civilization. And he is going to be the same old Baggins he was before, but more so. But but, but more, not more so. But he's, there's going to be more there. Yeah. And now he's going to be the kind of the kind of guy who has dwarves over any time. Dwarves yeah. are welcome any time. And that's, and, that's and, so and cool. And he will. And he yeah. will. You know, interestingly, I, I did a quick comparison looking. The way that the names showed up made me think of something. So I looked back to chapter one. And except for Balin and Dwalin being switched, this is exactly the order in which he met them in chapter one. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's just the list and the way the list worked in, in Tolkien's mind. I don't know. But I thought it was Probably, interesting. Yeah. 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 But it's cool. I love the way. It's that, funny that they're always in that order. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love, though, the 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 thought, the the somberness, you know, may your memory never fade. To, mm -hmm. to Thorn and Feely and Keely, it's it's a it's, reminder it's that beautiful. when we're yeah yeah when we're facing that kind of thing and and we're grieving the loss of a friend, you know, our our the only thing we can do is to to hold on to the memories, keep them. the memories, yeah, 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 and he will, and and they're they they are both you know on both sides they're gonna they're gonna hold the memory of the adventure they're gonna hold the memory yes. of the fallen and. Yes. Um, I don't know. There's just this. There's this great bond now that's been forged between mm -hmm. the hill, <laughs> in, yeah, in the Shire and the mountain, yeah. and that's the neat. hill and the mountain. That's a great point. I love that. It really is. And you know, I also love how really what Balin and Bilbo are saying are identical. They're just oh yeah, Balin saying it in the way of dwarves, with you know a little bit of that more formal language and. Uh, and, and Bilbo's just very hobbity. Very, very straightforward, tease very it, down to tease earth. Tease it for. Tease it for. You're welcome anytime. Yeah. Yeah, and that's true. And Balin's is, you know, very kind of formal, you know, goodbye yeah. and good luck wherever you fare. It's very it's very fantastical, very high fantasy. Yeah. yeah. The feast shall indeed be splendid. Tease it for. <laughs> I love it. Well, a, the feast shall indeed be splendid because Bilbo will be the one cooking it. Well, right. Exactly. We know that. <laughs> 
the <laughs> contents of his anytime. larder are well known by Gandalf. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> come over anytime. Come back to the mountain and cook for us. And don't forget Absolutely. to bring the cold chicken and pickles. <laughs> oh, man. And the buttered scones with tea. Yeah. <laughs> On Wednesdays, we'll go shopping. <laughs> buttered scones for tea. I'm a burglar and I'm okay. That's right. <laughs> Man, then we could go all day. Mm-hmm. May your beards never grow thin because there is no dwarven Rogaine. Um, I just thought we should point that out. Um, <laughs> and we know it's, it's, a, it's a horrible, horrible, yeah. uh, what's the word, dishonor for oh, a dwarf to lose oh, their beard. Horribly. Yes. Now, that would be a very bad thing. I wonder if it's a bad thing for the female dwarves to lose their beard. Maybe they're actually very grateful when it grows thin. <laughs> I don't I know. Wonder. I yeah, don't know. I wonder. I don't know. Maybe not. The chapter kind of ends up, I mean, like you'd think like that's <laughs> the end of the story. Maybe not. But now is the other half. Now is the beginning of the actual return home. Yeah. Uh, this is kind of the the fade to black that you get at the end of mm. Peter Jackson's Return of the King. Before <laughs> the first before of things, the fade to blacks, right? The first of the fade, exactly. The first one before, um, you know, you get another 30, 45 minutes. Yeah. Which I'm not complaining about. I thought that no. was, I thought that was needed. Um, Too many endings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had people, t- I had people tell me that like, oh yeah. Why were there so many endings? Have you read the book? Yeah. Obviously you have because have you, you wouldn't yeah, ask me why. Because there were there so actually endings. fewer endings in the movie than there were in the right. book. Right. <laughs> Because we knocked out the entire scouring of the Shire. There was a yeah. whole other climax in there. <laughs> and we were grateful. That's right. Yes. So now we have the return journey. Uh, Gandalf and Bilbo are, are traveling, riding behind the Elven King. Bayorn, I love this, walks beside them uh, in oh, manshape, awesome. fortunately. <laughs> um, they get to the forest. A little more predictable that way, I guess. Well, yeah, you know, well, they can probably have a, a, a better conversation with him. That's probably true, too. Like talking to Chewbacca. <laughs> They're invited to stay by the Elven King in the Wood Elves Hall, but they decline. Uh, and, yeah. and that's because they need to keep going and they've got a long journey. They're going to go all the way around the north side of the forest, which was, we know is like 200 miles out of their way. Right. Um, but, you know, that's a good decision because it's the way Bayorn's going. So when in doubt, go with the bear man. You know? <laughs> well, and it is the safer way now, too. I mean, Oh, yeah, yeah. Why I go through the earlier, trees? You know, this, whole, this whole region has now been made safer thanks to the yeah. five armies. But, yeah, I mean, the spiders yeah. are still there, so don't go through the woods. Right, right exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know. Don't go past the enchanted stream. I mean, yeah, have to cross that again. and now the yeah. But at least now the boat's on the right side. That is true. Maybe <laughs> the Elven King could give them another boat. But yeah, no. No. no I have. No. Just go ahead and go around. Exactly. Seriously. Hang out just, with the bear. The bear man yeah, longer. The bear man. He's going to give you the best protection that you can find, really. He is. I mean, if, if you know, this is, this is the right to bear arms, really. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh. Or I should no, say, no. this is the right to arm the, bears. I was going to say, it's a good thing he doesn't have a sword, because then that would be the right to arm bears. The armed bears. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Wow. On that terrible, terrible pun, uh, yeah. I'm going to pick up uh, oh, on the- father. <laughs> is that your Bayorn impression? Yes, that's my, that's my that's, Bayorn. I can just see this like seven foot tall grizzly bear saying that in just With this quiet- With a red t-shirt little, on. 
with a little red T-shirt and no pants. Still freaks nope. me out, just saying. His, his face in a honeypot. Yeah, exactly. The bees. Oh, stuff and fluff. <laughs> uh, rumbly right. in my tumbly. Oh, goodness. All right, so I'm going to pick up where, uh, where they're saying goodbye. All right. Farewell, O Elven King, said Gandalf. Merry be the Greenwood while the world is yet young, and merry be all your folk. Farewell, O Gandalf, said the king. May you ever appear where you are most needed and least expected. The oftener you appear in my halls, the better shall I be pleased. I, 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 I beg of you, said Bilbo, stammering and standing on one foot, to accept this gift. And he brought out a necklace of silver and pearls that Dan had given him at their parting. In what way have I earned such a gift, O Hobbit? said the king. Well, uh, I thought, don't you know, said Bilbo, rather confused, that uh, um, some little return should be made for your uh, hospitality. I mean, even a burglar has his feelings. I have drunk much of your wine and eaten much of your bread. I will take your gift, O Bilbo the Magnificent, said the king gravely, and I name you Elf friend and blessed, may your shadow never grow less, or stealing would be too easy. Farewell. I love that. I do so love that moment. It really That's does so kind of raise the opinion of, of the Elven King in my in my mind. Yeah. Um, he like everybody. He he kind of has some some bad moments. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> sure. Especially yeah, yes, after Smaug is dead. Mm-hmm. Um, some very bad moments. But uh, yeah, he remains he remains good people. And, yeah. um, yeah, this is a really cool moment. You know what? Bilbo, did you notice? The honest burglar. Yeah. Did you notice, though, what the king calls Bilbo? Oh, Bilbo the Magnificent. Do you remember when we talked about oh. that word earlier? Smaug the when Magnificent. When first Bilbo was calling Smaug, you know, Smaug the Magnificent, and then mm-hmm. he looked at himself, you know, he thought he looked magnificent. In yeah, the, yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. I just thought that was interesting. That is very interesting because now he's saying it, Thranduil is saying it in response to He's Bilbo's being given generosity. that title now, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's very Not cool. to mention the title of Elfrin, which is like the coolest thing you can get. That's, that's important. That's like a really big achievement. That's got to be worth at least like 200 gamer points or whatever achievements are worth. You, I mean, you'll get a trophy a, for that, yeah. I think you do. Yeah, you get a, a gold trophy for Elfrin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this really yeah. is a big deal. I mean, it he's is, now yeah. been named a friend by a king of dwarves and a king of elves, and he's just a little hobbit. Yeah. And an elf friend specifically, you know, yeah. to have this name bestowed by the elves, this is a yeah. really, really important uh, distinction. Yeah, uh, it's huge. You know, huge. while it goes without saying, you know, we can't say, okay, well, this is the list of criteria you need to meet to be called an elf friend. It's not like, you know, you got to have... X number of volunteer credits, and you got to have you know, whatever else. It's not like a how many for dead orcs or anything. You can't even be you yeah. can't even be considered for Elfrin until you have at least two hundred dead orcs to your name. Right, right, exactly. And you got and you got to have some you know some athletic stuff on there, and you know all that you know. Um, <laughs> extracurricular activities, extracurricular yeah. stuff. But but we can put together a partial list of people who have been called Elfrin, and we can see yeah. the kind of company that Bilbo is in now oh, with the bestowing of company, his name. Yeah. Uh, within this book, we get Elrond called an elf friend in Chapter 3 of The mm-hmm. Hobbit. Now, of course, we know that's there's really a little bit more right. to that story. He's actually half-elf. But mm-hmm. if you go back to the Silmarillion, uh, in the first age, the Edain, now, now that was the 
for those who haven't read The Silmarillion or didn't hear episodes, uh, the good men of the three houses who came into the West, they were called the Elf Friends. So uh-huh. that's basically all the human heroes of the First Age. Right, um, right. Elrond actually named named several. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah several the... of them are named at the Council of Elrond in Fellowship. Elrond names the mighty Elf Friends of old. And he goes on to talk about Hador, Hurin, Turin, and Beren. Yeah. Mighty company, as Thayden might say. Indeed. And that's the list of names that Bilbo's name is now on. Hador, mm-hmm. Hurin, Turin, and Beren, and Bilbo. <laughs> One of these things is not like the others. <laughs> you know, also in the timeline of The Lord of the Rings, Legolas calls Aragorn an elf friend. And, right. of course, much later, Gimli is named one, and Frodo himself becomes an elf friend as well. That's true, yeah. And then I don't want to forget a key hero of the Legendarium whose name actually was elf friend, Elendil, father mm-hmm. of Isildur. Uh, and the fact that in early versions of the Legendarium, there was a character named Elfwina, Old English for elf friend, who was a human traveler, found his way to Toleresia, and brought back the stories of the First Age to medieval England. Yeah, you know, that, that last comparison to Elfwina is, is very interesting to me. Yeah. Um, because Bilbo's role seems to echo that in some ways. Well, it does, and, doesn't it? And You're it, right. And it, sh- and it shouldn't surprise us because uh, well, no. Elfwina is probably the— well, there's a couple of those characters, who are in Turin and Baron, but that that were already in Tolkien's mind when he wrote The Hobbit. But Alfwina mm-hmm. was a big one in Tolkien's mind when oh, he yeah, wrote The yeah. Hobbit. Um, you know, the way that Bilbo goes on an adventure and then comes back again, and he comes back mm. with all this experience that he brings back to the Shire, and, and he'll write yeah. about that and share that knowledge with you know with with others around him. I mean, the the fact that he comes back named as an elf friend and. I'll even skip ahead a little bit to the last chapter of The Hobbit where we're told that forever after he remained an elf friend. Yeah. That just makes me realize just how profoundly he's been changed by this experience. And, and I, don't know, I, haven't, I haven't figured out everything I want to say about this yet, but I think I want to come back to it in the retrospective and just kind of talk about, you know, kind of looking back on Bilbo's journey and, and how, this, mm-hmm. how this changes him. Yeah. No, I think that's a good idea. We'll definitely be doing that in that, in that retrospective episode. Yep. Um, before we get there, we have to finish this chapter and the next, and that oh, means you take a next reading. All right. He had many hardships and adventures before he got back. The wild was still the wild, and there were many other things in it in those days beside goblins. But he was well-guided and well-guarded. The wizard was with him, and Bayorn for much of the way, and he was never in great danger again. Anyway, by midwinter, Gandalf and Bilbo had come all the way back, along both edges of the forest to the doors of Bayorn's house, and there for a while they both stayed. Yuletide was warm and merry there, and men came from far and wide to feast at Bayorn's bidding. The goblins of the Misty Mountains were now few and terrified, and hidden in the deepest holes they could find, and the wargs had vanished from the woods, so that men went abroad without fear. Bayorn indeed became a great chief afterwards in those regions, and ruled a wide land between the mountains and the wood. And it is said that for many generations the men of his line have the power of taking bear's shape, and some were grim men and bad, but most were in heart like Bayorn, if less in size and strength. In their day the last goblins were hunted from the misty mountains, and a new peace came over the edge of the wild. Hmm. Love that. Now, there's a lot to unpack at the end there about Bayorn that I definitely want to spend some time on, but going back to the beginning of that passage... This more hardships and adventures. It's sort of like adventure name not appearing in this film. Um, yeah. One of those, though, was the the Battle of the Anduin Vale, which was that was the climactic battle uh, in in the early versions of the tale. 
before oh, yeah, yeah. Tolkien decided to settle it with the Battle of the Five Armies. Remember, that was a late addition. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, yeah, in that Battle of Anduin Vale, the dwarves didn't even figure at all. They weren't, they weren't involved. So right. <laughs> I'm glad, again, that it took the form that it did. But yeah. uh, I, I do like much the idea Much more powerful of, the, way it, the way he ended it up. Oh, much, much. I just like the idea of adventure name not appearing in this film. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, you know, being safe, well, yeah, you're with a wizard and with a bear man. I mean, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Um, but I love they have a little Christmas break there at Bayorn's house. Yeah. Um, Spending Christmas with the bear. Yeah, presumably the bees are asleep. It's probably not a lot, you know. Hopefully they got a lot of honey stored up. Yep. <laughs> I, I'm just, uh, I'm still thinking of Christmas with the bear. I'm sure that I, I can't help but think that that was a little Easter egg you put in there for his kids. Oh, yeah. North Polar North Bear. North Polar Bear. Yeah. I, absolutely. Yeah. There's zero doubt in my mind that's exactly <laughs> yeah. what he's thinking of is Christmas with the bear. Yeah. Um, and then the peace, you know, the, the, the wargs yeah. vanishing, the goblins few and hiding. The goblins are few. The ones that are there are hiding, yeah. They're terrified. I love that. There's there's more of that renewal, that restoration yes. you know, of the yeah. region. And we get even more of that renewal with Bayorn uh, becoming mm. a great chief of the region. And this is the part of this passage I really enjoy kind of pondering about here, thinking about what happens with Bayorn. Because we're not really told a lot about the Bayornings, uh, you know. Right, yeah. We don't know a lot. No. But it is interesting that for, for many generations— the men of his line, not the women, it would seem, just the men, could take bear shape. Huh. Pretty yeah, cool. I, I wonder about that if it's the women, too. I mean, I, the way I just now read it, it was implying that it's only the men, not the women. Yeah, the men of his line. but Yeah. And it's hard to tell because, you know, whereas in, in the Silmarillion, Tolkien capitalizes men when he's talking about humans. That's um, true, but he's, he doesn't yeah, he's do talking that about them here. as a race so, now. Yeah. He, he doesn't do that here, so we are left to speculate whether it is... Men as in humans or men as in males. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. You're right. I mean, I, I think if it were capitalized men, I would be thinking that we're talking about just humans, that we're humans, talking about mankind. Yeah. But mm-hmm. specifically, the men of his line tells me that yeah. we're talking, uh, you know, a genetic genetic thing. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question, though. Yeah. And, of course, we have no answer. It's all and, speculation. No, not at all. I mean, there's so little and, about the Bayornings. <laughs> right. And the fact that it says some were grim men and bad, that almost, well, no, I'm probably reading way too much into that. I was thinking it's, you know, sort of the the, the, the male heir that this mm. is passed on to, but maybe not. Maybe it's all the men. I don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. I'm in pure speculation mode here. I'm just guessing. Isn't that fun, though? That's the fun stuff. It is, yeah. I like to have a little more to go on than this. Usually. Yeah, I know. It's a little more fun to speculate when you have something to come up with, you know, something to yeah. base it on. yeah. So spring arrives, and and they they leave. Um, it's time to go home. So three months, right? So they spent three months with Bayorn. If they were there from Yule to the beginning of yeah. spring, and then Yuletide was warm, and so they stayed there until spring when they yep. take their leave. And I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the chapter here. All right. At last, they came up the long road and reached the very pass where the goblins had captured them before. But they came to that high point at morning. And looking backward, they saw a white sun shining over the outstretched lands. There behind lay Mirkwood, blue in the distance and darkly green at the nearer edge, even in the spring. There, far away, was the lonely mountain on the edge of eyesight. On its highest peak, snow yet unmelted was gleaming pale. So comes snow after fire, and even dragons have their ending, said Bilbo. 
and he turned his back on his adventure. The Tukish part was getting very tired, and the Baggins was daily getting stronger. I wish now only to be in my own armchair, he said. So, the, Ready to go home. the Baggins is definitely, you know, <laughs> they've been reconciled, yeah. but the Baggins is definitely, you know, feeling a little stronger right now. Getting stronger as he gets closer to home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know what's interesting is is how different his thoughts are here when he was when he was here previously. And you know, we talked about how mm -hmm. he, they came to that exact point where they had been captured. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Compare that to his earlier thoughts when he got here. And I, I pulled the lines from way back when, chapter two or three or four, no, four I think it was. Yeah, it was four. That sounds right. Yeah. Far, far away in the West, where things were blue and faint, Bilbo knew there lay his own country of safe and comfortable things and his little hobbit hole. Hmm. So he was looking back at his right. home and thinking about how comfortable it was. And, and here and he missing, is now turning that, his back yeah. on the adventure. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. That's true. Yeah. And I feel... I feel now he's looking forward a little bit more. I mean, he's turning his back on his on his adventure, but he's looking mm -hmm. forward again to home. You know, finally is. home is in front of him again. Yes. Um, yeah. I guess that's obvious because he's turned around and he's coming back home. But but I think there's something kind of poignant about the fact Oh, yeah, about, he, well, broaching the mountain peaks. You know, now he's now yeah, he's over the yeah. top and now yeah. home really is there, uh, yeah. you know, in, in a visible place. Um, but, yeah, you know, he's able to, to see the Lonely Mountain and... What about yeah. that line? So comes snow after fire, and even dragons have their ending. Hmm. Hmm. That is lovely. It is lovely. I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I guess I don't the point know. is I mean, that dragons are well, going to, you know, they're going to have their end because yeah. fire has its end. Snow, yeah. yeah. Fire can, fire can be quenched. We talked about yeah, how the elemental nature Smaug, of that. Yeah, mm -hmm. and we talked about Smaug, you know, recognized that the lake was oh, yeah. you know was Could big enough him. to to put him to put him out to quench him, yeah. and um, and yeah maybe that's maybe that's all it is, maybe <laughs> it's just that um, that that quenching of um, of the fire of dragons, maybe there's a, a subtle hint in Tolkien's mind of uh, of Olmo versus Morgoth here I don't know, wow I'm probably that reading too much deep. into that but that's maybe neat. maybe the Turkish part is getting tired, you know it's like the adventure has now taken me a very long time. And even though this, you know, incredibly long time, three months probably at, uh, at Bayarns, I'm sure has been restful, I'm ready to get home. I want to be in my Turkish own part is, chair. Yeah. The Turkish part is ready to hang up his, his mithril coat and his weapons and <laughs> just, be, just yeah. be Bilbo again. Yeah, absolutely. Bilbo Baggins, Underhill. <laughs> I can't blame him. Well, it may not make us as sad as Bilbo saying goodbye to his dwarf friends, but we are a little saddened by the knowledge that a few of you tune out for a few minutes after our chapter discussions. Well done. I'd say shame on you, but I really understand. Um, do us a favor, though, please. Stick around. We're going to make it worth your while. Not only do we have good stuff in Barlaman's bag, but there really is an important announcement that we want to make. And believe it or not, it is not about Mythmood. No, it's not. Well, at least not mostly. We want to make sure you're all aware of what to expect after we wrap up our read-through of The Hobbit next week. So please do stick around. You really do want to hear this. You will. As Sean said, our next episode will cover the last chapter of The Hobbit. After that, we'll do our retrospective in episode 87, kind of a look back at some of the major themes and our favorite moments from the story. Not to mention some of your questions about The Hobbit that we haven't gotten a chance to answer yet. 
and maybe even some Silmarillion questions that we still have at the bottom of the bag if we have time. What can we say? Lots of people still have questions about the Silmarillion. <laughs> we'll be answering those in season eight. I'm sure. Uh, and then a week after that is when we'll be at Mythmoot 5, which we'll be recording and releasing on the feed as episode 88. And following that, we'll be releasing our next Questions After Nightfall episode, where we're going to be joined again by several of our listeners for live recorded Q&A. Mm-hmm. And then maybe there will be one little surprise after that. But maybe. then, yeah. what do we get on to? Then, well, as we said in our last episode, we're not going anywhere. We have a plan for the next several years. Yes, it's a several years plan. It, it begins is. with the Lord of the Rings, of course, and we are very excited. But that is a huge, huge job, and we really want to do it right. Truth is, our weekly schedule just has not left us a lot of time, really hasn't left us, left us any time for planning out our approach to that incredibly daunting project. No, and it also hasn't given us the time to work on a few other things that we'd like to do just mm-hmm. to have ready for season three. Yeah. And, and frankly, it hasn't given us a whole lot of time to rest either. No. Um, to, to quote the great Bilbo Baggins, we're feeling, uh, what was it again, Alan? Yeah, well, all thin, sort of stretched, if you know what I mean. Like butter that has been scraped over too much bread. And that is such a sad thing. I, you know, when you when you finish off the butter cube and you don't Not quite enough have enough bread. Oh, yeah, that's that's you're just like, I don't want to get out a whole new cube, but I'm going to have yeah. to because you can't have. Butter you can't have the bread without bread. enough butter. It just doesn't. No, that's true. No, it's not. Why bother eating the bread if you're well, not going to yeah. have the right amount of butter on it? That is correct. So, yeah, that's kind of how we're feeling. And while we do love doing this, oh, we, we love do. every moment of it, I promise. Very much. But we want to make sure that we continue to give you the best Tolkien podcast around, or at least the best one we can give you. <laughs> there you go. That's a much better bar, more achievable. Yeah. So, uh you know, after Mythmoot and after we release the one or maybe two other things we've got in the works, we will be taking a brief hiatus for the summer. Now, it's not going to be all summer. It's not going to be too long. It's just a few weeks. We plan to be back to start season three sometime in mid-August. After all, it's the job that's never started. It takes longest to finish, as my old gaffer used to say. <laughs> but don't worry. While we're off, we'll still be around on social media. Mm-hmm. Barlamin will still be bringing us the mail. And most importantly, we will still be working on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, or on things related to the podcast, all Absolutely. with an eye towards making things even better in season three. That's right. Now, we are planning on doing the same thing now between each season going forward. So we just wanted to kind of give you that heads up. Uh, not only will that keep us fresh and entertaining, to paraphrase Sean, as entertaining as we can be, uh, <laughs> it will give us a chance to prepare for each of the upcoming seasons you know, more thoroughly and, and to kind of get that roadmap going. So yep. there you have it. If you have any questions, just let us know on social media. Feel free to reach out to us or by emailing Barlaman at theprancingponypodcast.com. And if you registered for Mythmoot, you can tell us in person how much you're going to miss the podcast. Ah. See, I told you it wasn't primarily about Mythmoot. And if you aren't coming, don't worry. We'll be airing that live on Facebook at the time of the event, Saturday, June 23rd at 1 o'clock Eastern. And like we said, we'll be putting it up on the podcast feed as episode 88. And while we're not going to ask you for anything, if you'd like to see how we're doing towards our Patreon goals, you can see them at patreon.com slash prancingponypod. And, of course, we want to give a very special shout-out to our patrons at the Kierdance Contribution Tier, Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamsin in Minnesota, Don in Vancouver Island, and Emily in Texas. Thank you all. Indeed. Thank you. Well, Sean, why don't we go ahead and get on with Barlaman's bag? Our first question is from Tarek in Chicago, who asks, I was re-listening to Episode 9 today, and a question popped into my head that seemed a bit relevant, given the recent focus on dwarves. Do you think Aule molded the dwarves, at least the original fathers under the mountain, in his own image? 
or at least in likeness to the raiment that he had chosen for himself. Had anything ever been written about this by Tolkien? Hmm. Well, nothing's ever been written about it, um, no. so uh, we're kind of in pure speculation. Uh, hey, we do that, though. <laughs> <laughs> we do, yeah. We are totally in speculation territory here, Tark. Um, I guess I'll go first here. Um, if you remember that line from Reverend Lovejoy in The Simpsons, you know, the short answer, yes with an if, long answer, no with a but. Um, this is this is kind of like that, except it's mostly just no with a but for me. Yeah, um, yeah. If, if you go back to the language from the Silmarillion, chapter 2, it says, mm -hmm. And Aule made the dwarves even as they still are, because the forms of the children who were to come were unclear to his mind, and because the power of Melkor was yet over the earth, and he wished, therefore, that they should be strong and unyielding. Now, this tells us that Aule didn't make the dwarves in his own image. Uh, what I pick up on there is that he made them in the shape that he thought elves and men were going to take. He was just mm. a little fuzzy on the details, so <laughs> they came out a little shorter and hairier, and yeah. I don't know, maybe if he talked to his wife first, he could have compared <laughs> notes with her. <laughs> she at least uh, had seen the vision, too, and maybe she could say, no, I got a little bit different, you know. I think they're a little taller than that. Yeah, right. But back to the question, um, I mean, this makes sense, because as Tarek kind of hinted in his question, Ali doesn't have an image. He's a Vala, and he can change his range right. at will. right. Um, but here's where the, the Lovejoy butt comes in, because remember also, there's a statement in Ina that says, The Valar took to themselves shape and hue, and because they were drawn into the world by love of the children of Iluvatar, for whom they hoped, they took shape after that manner which they had beheld in the vision of Iluvatar, save only in majesty and splendor. Hmm. So my interpretation of that, it, here's a possibility. I'm not willing to say this is definitely the case, but here's a possibility. If Aule's imperfect memory of the vision was his basis for the dwarves, and if his memory of the vision was also his basis for his own preferred raiment, as it was for all the Valar, mm -hmm. then I would be willing to say it's possible that his usual look might have been fairly similar to the way dwarves came out. Um, it's not his own image, because as a Vala, he can change that at any time. Right. And I suspect that even if he did look like a dwarf at first, um, well, he would have been bigger because there's the majesty and splendor. Well, but, yeah. <laughs> but then you got to imagine that probably the first time he saw elves, he probably thought, oh, well, I didn't think they'd be that tall. So he probably <laughs> took on a, you know, a form that was more elf-like. And he probably, since there were always elves around, he probably would take on a form that was more elf-like, you know, as soon as yeah. Ingwe arrived. Yeah, uh, I think that would probably become his usual look pretty quickly. So I, I guess I'm saying no, but I, I'm willing to believe that it's possible that his his raiment for himself was very similar to the mm. way he, he made dwarves. I don't know. I, I, I'm fairly sure Manway and the other Valar weren't calling Aule the stunted Vala. So, uh, no, I, <laughs> I, I happen to fall pretty firmly on the no side of this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Majesty and splendor, man. Majesty and splendor. That's right. You know, it, it's clear. The, um, the the forms of the children were, were unknown to Aule. I mean, apparently all yeah. he knew was that they were bipedal. I mean, that's about it. Uh, I mean, at he least got he didn't two make eyes, walk right? I assume he got the right number of fingers. Somewhere on the all, front but... of the face or some, some yeah. visual sensory organs, you know. Uh, but in the middle of that line Sean gave us, I think, is the key. We get this because the power of Melkor was yet over the earth. And he wished, therefore, they should be strong and unyielding. That's why they're strong. That's why they're stocky. That's why they're tough. That's why they're just, you know, built like a fire hydrant, you know, short and thick. Ali didn't need to take a particular shape in order to deal with, with Melkor, but his creations did have to have a particular shape in order to deal with him. So 
I don't think they hmm. bear any resemblance to their maker, except I would at least guess that he has a beard when he's wearing his raiment, maybe. I mean, that's kind of the only <laughs> thing I can think of, because he does seem to be like really attached to facial hair. Um, but yes, I will but... say one more thing. Given his little tiff with the missus, I am not surprised that he made the dwarves a predominantly male race. He seems to have forgotten how important women are, wouldn't you say? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, there's something as, there. <laughs> as much as I want to argue with your firm, no, because I do still think there's a possibility there. I, I kind of yeah. love your last insight so much that I'm just going <laughs> to let the whole thing stand. So oh, good. good. Uh, I'm willing to agree to disagree on that one minor point because I think we're on the same page otherwise. <laughs> I think we are. Um, <laughs> so our next question. <laughs> is from Moritz in Germany, who asked us a question about the invisibility effect of the One Ring. Hmm. He said, In the chapter Flies and Spiders, when Bilbo just finishes his second song and slashes through the nets to get back to the dwarves, it says that the spiders saw the sword. Does this line appear in the first edition Hobbit? Hmm. If so, what do you make of it in the context? And if not, do you think that this is Gondolin magic canceling that of Sauron? Hmm. An interesting question. And uh, just to confirm, uh, Bilbo does have the ring on at the point that Moritz is talking about. He put it on a couple mm -hmm. of pages before, basically right before he found the group of spiders uh, talking about eating the dwarves. And then he doesn't take mm -hmm. it off again until he rescues Feely. So, you know, as Moritz says, Bilbo is invisible, but Sting is not. To answer Moritz's first question, uh, yes, the entire sentence that is on page 148 of our edition that begins, the spiders saw the sword, though I don't suppose they knew what it was, that whole sentence is exactly word for word in the first edition. It's on page 166 yep. if you've got the first edition or the facsimile. So yeah. it, <laughs> if you've got the first edition, <laughs> yeah. that's a whole other ballgame. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't have anything to do with Sting's elvish magic canceling Sauron's magic because the effect was the same no. long before Sauron had anything to do with the ring. So obviously what we're seeing is that the ring's invisibility has a limited effect. Uh, the wearer is invisible. But whatever he's holding in his hand is visible. Hmm. Now, it has to be only when he's wielding Sting, when he's actually holding it in his hand, because Bilbo was invisible in the Elven King's Halls for weeks, and I kind of think the elves would have noticed a sword from Gondolin floating around the halls. So, <laughs> so the question is... There's that floating there's sword that flo again. What, what is up with the floating sword? About? Galleon? Do you know what's going on with this floating sword? Um, but the question is, is Sting visible when wielded because of its elvish make? Or would any item that the wearer is holding be visible? Or maybe would hmm. any magical item be visible? I think that's the question. Well, interestingly, we – yeah, it, that is interesting because we got a similar question from a listener in Texas by the name of Chad, uh, although about a different ring bearer and a, an actually a different magic mm -hmm. item. Uh, he says, the one ring could not cover the Elendilmere's luminosity, but add a hoodie and it can. <laughs> What the one could cover always seemed a little unscientific to me. For instance, hold a ball, dawn ring, covered. Drop ball, hmm. <laughs> well, clever clever phrasing to the question, hey. I will say. Uh, as a reminder, the Elendilmir was the star of Elendil made of elvish crystal that Isildur wore on a, a mithril fillet as the token of his kingship over Arnor. He was wearing it when he was ambushed by orcs at the Gladden Fields, and when he tried to escape with the ring, here's a passage from Unfinished Tales, he set it upon his finger with a cry of pain and was never seen again by any eye upon Middle-earth. But the Elendilmere of the West could not be quenched, and suddenly it blazed forth red and wrathful as a burning star. Men and orcs gave way in fear, and Isildur, drawing a hood over his head, vanished into the night. 
Now, in that case, the alindomir was on his head and not in his hand, mm-hmm. but right. it was visible because it shone with its own light mm-hmm. Now, until he covered it with his hood. So we have another case of covering the object while invisible makes the object invisible. Right. And, you know, the description of the alindomir blazing red and wrathful as a burning star reminds me of Weathertop. Oh, When Frodo yeah. put on the ring to try to hide from the ring wraiths, and then he drew the barrow sword, and it said, Desperate, he drew his own sword. And it seemed to him that it flickered red, as if it was a firebrand. Hmm. Interestingly, Frodo's sword, because remember, this is the Barrow sword. This is before he has Sting. This is an, right. another artifact of the North Kingdom. It's Numenorian, like the Elendomir. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, since we only see that scene from Frodo's point of view, I'm not willing to say for sure whether anyone else saw the sword blazing or if only he did. No. But yeah. but because it stands out so prominently when Frodo sees everything else as dim and dark, that's part of the passage as well, to me, that yeah. suggests, only suggests, but uh, suggests that his sword may be somehow different. And maybe that mm-hmm. could mean that it was visible to others. To others. Now, that's totally speculation. I'm not going to hang my hat on it, well, but sure. it's a possibility. No. No, of course. And there's one more thing to consider. We saw in the chapter a couple weeks back that Bilbo wrapped the Arkenstone in a rag before putting the ring on and crossing the lines over to Bard's camp. Now, obviously, he did that so Bomber wouldn't see it. But we see that once he slipped the ring on the light of the Arkenstone didn't give him away. And like the Elendilmere, it has to be because it's covered. Right. So where do we land on this? Wow. Um, well, I guess I have to conclude, based on the instances we've looked at today, I think the ring confers invisibility to its wearer and anything on the wearer's person. That means anything under their clothes, in their pockets, sheaths, bags, and otherwise. If it's in their mm, hand... Okay. It's probably not invisible, which to me makes all those instances of Bilbo carrying food while he was invisible just a lot funnier to me now. <laughs> uh, why is that pie floating down the... <laughs> Galleon, why is the pie floating? Where's the wine going? Um, oh, goodness. And, and so funny. I would add to that that anything that shines with its own light would not be invisible, even if it's worn, mm. unless the light source yeah. is covered. That, that accounts for the Elendilmere. The Elendilmere and the Arkenstone. And the Arkenstone. Yeah. Now, that's just based on what we've dug up for today. I am going to reserve the right to change sure. my mind once we get into Lord of the Rings, if we see oh, yeah, if we see yeah. some new cases that change that. But, yeah, that's kind of where I am. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I think I land where you landed. I, you know, actually, I remember another moment, and it was before Bilbo knew the ring made him invisible. In Chapter 5, as he begins running from Gollum, he struck his toes on a snag in the floor and fell flat with his little sword under him. Mm. Well. It's a good thing the blade wasn't pointed up at the time, I guess. But yeah. Tolkien put that in there. <laughs> Oops, story's Oops. over. <laughs> and this little oh, Bilbo died in obscurity under the mountains. <laughs> and thus he bled out and was eaten by Gollum. <laughs> um, anyway, I think Tolkien put that in there, that description of the fact that he had to fall with his sword under him. Because we knew already as the reader that the sword glowed with blue light and that it would need to be hidden in order for it to be invisible, yeah. even though, even though Bilbo was wearing the ring. That's interesting. I mean, in that case, yeah. I wonder if he actually dropped the sword while he was falling, in which case it could have, it no. could have suddenly appeared out of nowhere <laughs> if, he had, then if he hadn't landed on, on top of it. Um, now, Tolkien doesn't say whether he dropped it or not or, you know, whether he right. had to pick it up again when he picked himself up. But I don't know. Having the sword underneath him certainly kind of dealt with all that, made it unseen without having to mess yeah. around with those kind of details, which we know Tolkien. Which is why I Tolkien think Tolkien was not always it. crazy about dealing with those details. <laughs> No. If I don't have to deal with the details, I'm going to find exactly. a way to not have to deal Anyone with the details. Would. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you, Tarek, Moritz, and Chad. 
Folks, that nearly wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. As always, thank you very much for spending your time with us. And we look forward to having you join us again next time when we get to the final chapter, chapter 19 of The Hobbit. Roads go ever on and on, but Bilbo's road home and our road through his memoir is coming to an end. But don't be too sad. We still have some good stuff waiting for you in the next episode and in our retrospective. Oh, we definitely do. And in the meantime, we invite you to please check out the official library tab on our website, theprancingponypodcast.com. We've got links to everything from inexpensive paperbacks to some pretty good stuff for your Tolkien collection. And if you wouldn't mind heading over to iTunes for us and leaving a review, we'd be grateful for that. Those reviews help us get more visibility in iTunes, and that just brings more people to our podcast and increases our community. Absolutely. And thank you to those of you who have. As we say every week, we do continue to read every last one of them. And we're also featuring one a week on our social media networks on Thankful Thursdays. Now, make sure you never miss an episode of the show by subscribing through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And we want to thank everyone who's become part of our social media family. We set out to start a Tolkien conversation that everyone could join. And that's why we have our online common room on Facebook at the Prancing Pony Podcast, on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod, and Instagram at Prancing Pony Pod. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and photos of your Bjorning sightings in the woods. Just don't go messing with Sasquatch. Uh, to <laughs> Bartleman at the Prancing... <laughs> well done. Never expected a, a beef jerky commercial reference. Beef jerky ad right there. there. Uh, send those photos, please, to Bartleman at the prancingponypodcast.com. And, well, we'll try to get them up on our social media because we can't get pictures up in our next episode. But That too. Ah. <sighs> However much time we've had, <laughs> it is still far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time, farewell, friends. <laughs>